0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. No small talk, chit-chat on this show. Let's get straight to the interview as always. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest today, Matthew Bernstein. He is an adjunct professor of English at Los Angeles City College. He also teaches at Matrix for Success Academy and is a frequent magazine contributor. In the book which he is here to talk about today, of course, is called George Hurst, Silver King of the Gilded Age. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome.
1: Uh, Great to be here, Eric.
0: So George Hurst, I know him and a lot of other people listening might have been introduced to him through the television show Deadwood. He he was played by Gerald McRaney, and he was one of the the primary villains in the show. How did you first learn about George Hurst?
1: Well, uh... The first time I came across George was actually through Deadwood, but I wasn't immediately uh, intrigued in his life story that I started researching it. But I got to tell you, I, uh, I loved Deadwood. Um, at that time, uh, that was my very favorite show, and I still consider it my favorite Western TV show. Now, happily, a friend of mine actually works on NCIS LA, where Gerald McRaney plays a part. And so after the George Hearst book came out, I gave the book to my friend who gave it to McRaney. I, got, I gave him a signed copy. And she would report to me that uh, McRaney would be, he was very enthusiastic, and she would see him reading it on set. So I was pleased by that.
0: Wow. Great story. Glad yeah, you liked it. The... What, what motivated you to write a book about
1: him? Well... I was between classes at Victor Valley College, where I was teaching at the time, and I was in their library, and I happened across a book called Citizen Hearst, and it was about William Randolph Hearst, George Hearst's son. And I started flipping through it, and I was very engaged by the story. I'd never read a nonfiction biography that felt so much like fiction, because William Randolph Hearst's life was just so wild. But what struck me was that there was only like 40 or 50 pages where George Hearst played a part. And I was like, well, this is the guy who made all the money. You know, this is the guy I really want to read about. But you couldn't find a biography on George. Uh, I eventually found one written in the 1930s by friends of the Hearst family. And it made George Hearst seem like the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, so it really wasn't. Uh, being very factual. And I read some other William Randolph Hearst biographies, and they were kind of the same thing, just a little bit on George. So I finally realized that either I was going to wait around for a historian to write the book I wanted to read, or I would have to do the massive amount of research and write the book myself. So that's how it happened.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. So George Hearst uh, was not set up for success at an early age He had to do it basically all by himself.
1: Yeah, when he uh, went to the gold rush in 1850, by the time he got there, all he had was like a a bag of flour and no money, right? You know, like uh, it was basically a rags to riches story. And uh, he went around California for 10 years uh, during the uh, height of the gold rush Sometimes making a little money and sometimes losing money, you know, as he would tell you, and not doing terrifically well. So, yeah, he didn't have a whole lot of uh, familial familial help. In fact, his mother and his father-in-law at that point, back on the farm in Missouri, they were actually asking him uh, during this time if he could pitch in, uh, which he uh, very much tried to do. Uh,
0: He was incredibly smart. And had a real intuition for the business of sniffing out mines, but he had no real formal education, right?
1: Yeah, he had a very patchy education. He grew up in uh, Franklin County, in Sullivan, in Missouri, uh, not terribly far from St. Louis, maybe about sixty miles from St. Louis. Uh, but at that point in time, you know, you were being educated in log cabins. There was nothing formal. He would say, you know, I did a few months of schooling here and a few months of schooling there. At one point in time, as a child, they packed him away and sent him to an aunt in St. Louis so he could get a little bit more reading, writing, and arithmetic. But what really struck him was mining. And, you know, Missouri was known as the, uh, the lead belt. And he went to a mining school when he got very interested in it. And it really sparked a passion with him. Uh, but yeah, as far as intelligence goes, you know, as, a, as an educator, I can tell you know, there's the concept of multiple intelligences where, you know, some people are, uh, you know, gifted in art and some people in music. He had what would we would call a natural intelligence um, or a naturalist intelligence. He was one of those guys who could look at a mountain and had a very good instinct of what minerals were in it. Now, his son would have the linguistic uh, genius, um, but both of them had an iron will and a vaulting ambition.
0: So what was his his personality like? What did he look like? How did he present himself to people?
1: Well, he was a little over six feet tall. Uh, He was blonde genial smile. People said he could tell a good anecdote. And later in life in Virginia City in the 1860s, and then in the 1880s and 90s, he was friends with Mark Twain, first in Virginia City. And George was one of those few people who could actually riff with Mark Twain. They would crack each other up, and their tall tales would get taller and taller to the amusement of others. Uh, George was a natural leader. Um, whenever he'd be part of a mining outfit, even before he made a ton of money, people would tend to defer to George Hearst. He had a he had an instinct for that. And as for a personality, well, he liked to drink. Uh, he liked to smoke cigars. He liked to race horses. He liked to gamble. He liked to have a bunch of cronies around him and have a good time. And people would say that, yeah, George was a uh, – he was – Not lazy, but he was prone to having a good time until someone said that there was gold or silver or copper in them thar hills. Whenever he heard about a strike, he was instantly for it, and at that point in time, he would be all action.
0: Except for one, correct? The California Gold Rush. Yeah. He didn't act as quickly as he later thought he should have.
1: Yeah, you're right about that. Um... You know, when the gold rush happens, uh, people in Missouri would read newspaper reports and they were hearing stories. And George initially kind of wanted to go, but then he went to uh, the father of a gal he was sweet on. And he said, you know, like, this is going to blow out. There's not much gold there. The Jesuits got it all beforehand. So George was like, okay. And he sat on his hands. And at that point in time, he was helping to run a... uh, a store kind of like a grocery store on the outskirts of town. And he waited, he felt he waited too long. He eventually sets out with a couple cousins in 1850. um, You know, and they take the Oregon trail and then cut off to the California trail. And when he gets to California, he's kind of horrified that it's too crowded. Uh, It appears to him that like all the easy, easy pickings have already been plucked up. And yeah, that's one of the things where he kicks himself for about 10 years that he went too late.
0: So what does he do when he gets there? Where does he start his work? And what is the gold mining process like in 1850?
1: Okay. Well, by 1850, uh, a lot of the... uh, a lot of the river gold had already been plucked up. You know, people were taking all like frying pans any pan they could get and getting it out of the waters. Now, once they, uh, once they had kind of gotten all the gold there, um, people started realizing and thousands of people uh, came into California, San Francisco bloomed from, you know, something of like 50 people to thousands uh, virtually overnight. uh, Ships, were left in the port as like the sailors came in, you know, just, they would, uh, they would leave, they would abandon, uh, their boats. And you would see these, uh, these like rotting carcasses of their ships from the hills of San Francisco. Anyways, George gets there and he realizes, as a lot of people do, that what needs to happen is you actually need to find the source of the gold. Uh, and the source of the gold is actually in the mountains and washed down in the rivers. And George initially uh, started doing what was called placer mining, not far from uh, Sutter's Mill, the heart of the gold rush, where the gold was first discovered. And, you know, he uh, he roams around. He eventually gets to uh, Nevada City, which was then called Nevada. It would become City so that people wouldn't confuse uh, the state of Nevada when that became a state. He's near Nevada City, uh, not terribly far from Tahoe, and Grass Valley. And they're both booming uh, gold rush towns. And George is able to establish his first gold mine there. And he's got some cousins and some friends, and... At one point, he's down in a in a windlass, and someone comes up and finds him, uh, Almer and B. Paul, because Hurst has got the mill, and the other guys have got the mine, and they make a deal, half the mill for half the mine, and everyone's deferring to George, and George is able to make a, uh, a good fortune out of that. But, and this is the problem with gold mining, even once you've got a gold mine, ultimately unless you're really lucky, like you're in the Dakotas in Deadwood, ultimately the gold is going to run out. And it did around uh, 1851, 1852, uh, and George had to leave the area. He went to Sacramento and tried for a while to succeed uh, in merchandising. Uh, Down the street was Leland Stanford, who had become a governor and then uh, part of the big four, you know, the railroad barons. Uh, but George didn't do very good in merchandising and ultimately gave it up.
0: So what prompts his move to Virginia City and what does he find there?
1: Well, it's about uh, 1859 and he's, in, he's back in Nevada City at this point. He's got a, another gold mine and a lot of people start coming in from the east uh, from uh, Nevada territory, or it was really the uh, Humboldt desert at that point. And they tried to be sneaky about it, but had, they had these bags of ore and they were looking for an assayer. People would look at the ore and they would say, yeah, uh, there's gold in there. There's mostly silver. And you know, then the question is, where did you find it? And they tried to be cagey. Uh, George Hearst sniffed it out pretty quickly that there was a fortune to be made in the Humboldt Desert in what is now Virginia City, not terribly far from Reno. And Nevada City wasn't terribly far away. I don't have the numbers quite on me, but it wouldn't shock me if it was something like 60 miles. So he gets a party together and they start out over the mountains and right in the middle of it, George gets cold feet. He's thinking to himself, you know, I've got safety back in California. I've got a gold mine. This seems like a a wild goose chase among the indians as he describes it in his memoirs but he decides ultimately you know i can't go back with my tail between my legs i'm going to push on and he gets to this mining camp that will ultimately be called virginia city and there's a there's a bunch of prospectors and they're living in shanty tents and it's a uh, it's dirty there's nothing like civilization and he eventually starts talking with someone who kind of intimates like, yeah, the, uh, the ore they're pulling out over there, you know, it looks like uh, like blue stuff, maybe lead. Like, we're thinking that's silver. And George goes all in. Uh, he sends word back to his friend Almerin B. Paul in Nevada City to sell the gold mine to get me my share, and then he's able to purchase one-sixth of the Ofer mine. And the mine turns out to be brimming with silver. And within six months of Hearst being in Virginia City, he is a millionaire. And now he's living large. Uh, He buys a nice house, two-story, because now civilization comes in. He's smoking cigars. He's drinking on the deck. He's got his cronies around. He meets Mark Twain, and he's living large.
0: So how old is he? at this point in his life?
1: At this point in time, he's it's 1860. He's 40 years old. He was born in 1820. Um, so he's a little long in the tooth because he's thinking about marriage. For the first time, he's spectacularly wealthy. So he goes around Virginia City, and he's kind of trying to find a gal. And he, he finds one gal, and they're kind of hitting it off. He's thinking of you know marriage and people throwing a rice at him as he walks down the aisle uh, but the sister of the galley sweet on spoils the play and says you can't marry that worthless Hearst uh, now yes he had a lot of money but he was also uh, you know again he was a guy who liked to drink and gamble and smoke cigars uh, he had his uh, pronounced Missouri accent some people didn't think he was quite a catch. Some people thought he was a dirty old Hurst. Anyways, yeah, he he struck out with the ladies in Virginia City.
0: Yeah, the the ratio of men to women, uh, that was not helpful at all for for men looking to find a wife. Oh, yeah. Uh, So he goes back to Missouri, and this is during the Civil War. And Missouri, of course, is a very volatile border state. With a it's lot very of much a microcosm
1: for the Civil War. Yeah, so he gets a uh, he gets a letter from his stepfather because uh, George's uh, dad died when he was, uh, I think, a teenager. Anyways, he gets the letter, and the letter says, Mom's your mom is sick. You need to come home." And it's been ten years, so he does the right thing. He comes home, and his mom's dying of tuberculosis, and. Now it's uh it's 1860. Then uh, you know he spends some time splashing around his money, and he's actually trying to uh, you know look for a, a local girl. At this point, the Civil War begins, and they're close to St. Louis. They're close to the uh, the center of the storm here uh, because both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis know that the largest cache of munitions. In a slave state, which Missouri was Is in the St. Louis arsenal uh, So there's a uh, There's a whole Game of Thrones thing About who can control it There's uh, Confederates Pretending to be Unionists um, People see through that Ultimately uh, the Union Gets control of the Arsenal um, There's battles raging all around And George is a uh, He is not going to join the war. His family, when he was born, had owned slaves um, on the farm. Uh, When he goes back to Missouri, he wants none of that. Uh, He has seen how the world operates in a big city like San Francisco, and that's the sort of thing he wants to be in. He wants to be in a cosmopolitan city with the cosmopolitan lady. And as a newly made millionaire who doesn't exactly believe in the Southern cause and considers himself a Westerner. He doesn't want to fight for either side. So he portrays himself as neutral a little bit. He does help out uh, some of his Southern cousins. Uh, One of them gets arrested um, and begs uh, his cousin, George to do anything he can in St. Louis and try to get him off. And George ultimately gets arrested for basically speaking his mind and being a bit of a blowhard, you know, supporting the Confederacy verbally, at least. Now, there's not much written about it, um, but he was arrested and his friends in Virginia City uh, were very uh, concerned that, you know, this whole empire he was forming through Virginia City silver uh, was going to dissolve and their livelihoods could be impacted as well.
0: And we will be right back.
1: The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. "Riva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
2: and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously
0: peer inside the Box of Oddities.
2: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast
0: from Airwave Media.
2: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Oh, well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we have returned. So he finds and marries a woman named Phoebe Apperson. Mm-hmm and they move to San Francisco, where he's not exactly thrifty. <laughs> he's well known for making a lot of money and spending a lot of money.
1: Oh, none of the Hearst family is known for being thrifty. Yeah, he uh, he eventually attracts uh, a cousin's cousin, uh, Phoebe Apperson, and they get married, and she wears a dress that she herself had stitched. It's a small wedding because her parents don't really think that uh, he's a great match because he's so much older. It's something like uh, she's 19 and he's 41. You know, like it's a, it's a large difference. Anyways, they they do get married. Uh, he gets a pass to go through union lines. They take a trip around or uh, into the isthmus of Panama. And by the time they're on the other side, Phoebe is showing she is pregnant with, who is going to become William Randolph Hearst? They get to San Francisco, and George wants to show off for his new wife. He, buy, he buys a nice house. Um, they, have, uh, they have a horse and wagon. You know they've got a billiards table. Um, he buys a racetrack. You know uh, right there in the middle of San Francisco. It ultimately burns down. He gets some money back. You know through insurance, um, but it's a uh, it's pretty wild. He is spending money like a millionaire, and as rich as he is, he's actually spending more than he can afford.
0: So, Phoebe, who is a a long ways from home, is joined by her mother, right? She comes out to the West Coast.
1: Yeah, her family uh, joins them uh, a couple years later. You know, now they've got a grandkid, and they move out to San Jose um, and kind of like start a farm, and they're very religious people. So, uh, you know they're big members of the church out there,
0: but she believes she's married into financial security. And not long after their marriage, they suffer a tremendous financial catastrophe. He loses all of the money, and he ends up going into debt.
1: Yeah, he uh, he gets himself uh, underwater. Um, you know, in the eighteen sixties, there was all sorts of silver, mostly being discovered in the West. Idaho uh, further on in Nevada and George because you know the Op mine his uh, his other mines in Virginia City are, are looking to be played out he starts uh, going with his buddies and mining excursions and nothing's really panning out um, he's making a little bit of money here a little bit there mostly losing money and ultimately he thinks like okay I'm going to recoup my losses. And a lot of his friends who are wealthier than he is, and he's smoking cigars with and he's drinking with, they're making fortunes at the stock market. And George thinks, well, I can do that, you know, like one turn of the card. So he starts spending more and more in time at the San Francisco stock stock board. And like the uh, ignorant of stocks guy he is, he loses his wad, as he calls it, and suddenly he's a hundred thousand dollars in debt. So this is this is outrageous, you know. Like he's able to make some of it back on a uh, a big gold mine in California, and around that time he meets Lloyd Tevis and James B. Hagen, and these are two of the biggest robber barons in the West, you know, like a. Tevis, at one point, was the president of uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad. Uh, Wells Fargo was something he had invested in. Uh, Hagen made a fortune by buying a lot of worthless swampland, as people thought it, around Sacramento, uh, irrigating it, and then selling it for a fortune. Anyways, they meet George Hurst, and even though George Hurst isn't doing very well financially, they figure, like, we can stake this guy. Um, and they do. And George ultimately ends up not doing terribly well for them. So they figure like, okay, we're going to give you one last throw of the dice. And this is about 1872. So George goes out and he's like, okay, I'm either going to find a fortune or my whole family is, you know, we're going to be paupers. At this point in time, he's had to first rent out and then sell their home in San Francisco. And it appears he's keeping Phoebe in the dark. She's uh, having this European vacation with little William Randolph Hearst at the time um, and is fairly ignorant to uh, their financial distress. Um, But George goes out and he hears that there might be a great diamond mine somewhere in the West. And he knows this because a couple of uh, Southerners named uh, Slack and Arnold have shown up in San Francisco to the Bank of America with a big sack of diamonds and rubies. And they convince a lot of people that they know where this great diamond field is and they can take them there. And George wants in, but they're going with a different a uh, mine appraiser. So George starts uh getting maps and hiring people to track uh Slack and Arnold and his party as they go further into the west trying to figure out where this fabled diamond mine is. Uh Eric have you heard this story about uh the uh, the great diamond hoax of 1872?
0: Uh in your book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I've, I have read about it in, in passing before in, in preparations for interviews for this show, but never actually talked about it in an interview, if memory serves. Um, Charles Tiffany is involved in this. Yeah,
1: yeah. So they, uh, they create, you know, what they've got to do is they've got to get these uh, diamonds appraised. So who better to go to the, uh, you know, the greatest diamond expert in the country, uh, Charles Tiffany in New York city. So they all go to New York city and they spread out, uh, these diamonds on, uh, on a billiards table. And Tiffany says like, okay, you know, is going to take some time. And he gets back to him a day or two later. And by this time, uh, generals like old civil war generals are involved. Uh, General Dodge is one of them. And Tiffany says like, this is worth a fortune. And everybody is unbelievably happy. Uh, at this point in time, they've created a, uh, a mining outfit. You know, there's, uh, there's stocks being uh, talked of. And now it's time to lead uh, the party where it is. And it turns out that it's in uh, present-day Colorado, near Bridger, if I remember correctly. And uh, George Hurst is able to, he sends a party. At this point, Hearst has based himself out of Salt Lake City because he figures Salt Lake City is kind of like a good middle spot in the entire West. So wherever it turns out the mine is, he can jump to it. And he's got a party that have secretly uh, tracked uh, Slack and Arnold and the others. And after Slack and Arnold and the others leave, and they all leave happy, You know, because they find more diamonds and more rubies. Hearst guys uh, show up and they determine that these diamonds, there's something wrong with them. Uh, Clarence King also gets in on the action. He's another great uh, mine appraiser. And someone tells King, this is the bulliest mine you've ever seen. Like, not only does it produce diamonds, it produces cut diamonds, and then it quickly uh, comes out that, like, these look like South African diamonds. And the whole thing appears to be a hoax. It appears that Arnold and Slack have played the San Francisco and New York experts in their field for fools and have gotten a fortune. But George has got the inside track. He wasn't able to get any, uh, any diamonds worthwhile, but what he's got, and this is what his buddies. Hagen and Tevis are after is he's got the information that this is worthless. So Hagen and Tevis who are great stock speculators themselves and robber barons are able to short the market and make a fortune. And now George Hearst is back in their good graces.
0: So he's, he's a partner with them, right? But not on equal footing. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, some people call it a triumvirate, um, but it's really Tevis on top, then Hagen, and then George Hurst. And he's their mining stocking horse. And it now pays off for them more than just the diamond information. At the same time as, you know, the great uh, hoax was playing out, George Hurst, because he's based in Salt Lake City, decides he's going to do some prospecting around Salt Lake City. And not terribly far away. He finds some guys have uh, sunk a shaft in a canyon, and they've called it the Ontario Mine. And George has got his buddies around with him, and they say, like, no, this is no good. Uh, But George has got a feeling, and he oftentimes does. And he sticks around, and the owner of the mine says, look, uh, I don't really think there's much here. I'm uh, kind of looking to sell. I want to get out. But, you know, there's going to be a big price. So the price they agree on, uh, historians differ, um, either 25000 or 30000 incidentally. George is able to scrounge that up, and he gets a hold of the Ontario mine, and he starts developing it. And as it turns out, it will become the greatest silver mine of that time. And Hearst has got it. Nobody had any idea of it, and it's owned by... Uh, Hearst, Hagen, and Tevis, and it'll take a couple years to build it up so that it can make a lot of money. And during this time, because we're now in 1873, the whole country is dealing with a uh, severe depression. Um, And uh, Phoebe and William Randolph Hearst come back and they have to live in a boarding house for a while. Uh, Phoebe will have to live with uh, her parents for a while. Um, So things are not great. But ultimately, when it starts paying off, it starts paying off in the millions. And at that point in time, George Hearst is never gonna go broke despite how much ungodly money he will spend.
0: It's it's a pretty incredible story. I mean the average salary in this period is like three to four hundred dollars a year, in the idea that someone with, with little education can make millions, lose millions, and then make millions again. Yeah. It, it's pretty extraordinary.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's almost like uh, Mark Twain's book, The Gilded Age, You know, where like, you can make a fortune overnight, lose it the next week, rebuild your fortune the next month. Um, George Hurst lived that life. Um, and it was also the age for it. Uh, selling shorts was only made legal in the United States in the 1850s. You know, like this was the time when you you would have uh, Rockefellers and Haggins and Tebesses and uh, the Big Four in California were able to make uh, huge uh, amounts of money. The the country was also sort of like primed for it, getting over the Civil War. Suddenly, the uh, the mines and the capitalists had something else to look at. Uh, but yeah. It was an outrageous amount of money uh, that George Hearst made, and he knew what he wanted to do with it. He wanted to live large. He wanted to allow Phoebe to do whatever she wanted, uh, whether that meant like a a great mansion here or there, um, an art collection here. Only the best tutors for little William Randolph Hearst. Uh, even as a child, he learned to uh, fence and ride. Uh, a Harvard education was in the offing. And George at any point could buy a, uh, a cattle ranch, a political career. You know, like he, uh, There was nothing he could dream of spending that he couldn't afford when he was at his height.
0: So he's got this incredible ability, as you've already said, to, to just look at a mountain, engage its value. And now he, he just sort of starts darting around the country, chasing down leads, following up on rumors of riches, and always wanting to get in at the beginning.
1: Yeah, he uh, he does love to travel. Like I'm not sure in that age there was a millionaire who spent so much time on the road. Uh, part of it, I think, is he wasn't so happy being uh, in a domestic environment. If he spent like so much time with uh, with the kid and his wife, it would probably drive him crazy. But yeah, he goes around the country and he's had his eye on Deadwood for a while or the Black Hills before Deadwood uh, gets its name. It gets his name for uh, Deadwood Gulch, uh, which was named for the dead trees in there. Uh, you know, like uh, Custer and his guys had come in in 1874 and determined yes the rumors of gold is true the gold is there and george really can't get in there you know like uh troubles obviously hit their peak in 1876 with the battle of the little bighorn Um, but by 1878 uh, the area that will become known as deadwood and lead uh, are overrun with prospectors illegally but uh, the country's trying to get out of uh you know a depression anyway, so you know the thought that there's all this gold there is something that the uh, governments and the military is kind of winking at, and they're not really telling these uh invading prospectors uh to get out so anyways, eighteen seventy eight uh George finally is able to pull the trigger and get out there himself, and now he's got. Uh, the capital coming from the Ontario mines, and the backing of Hagen and Tevis. So kind of like the show Deadwood, even though he's not as violent, but he is as uh, rapacious. He does want uh, to control the entire area. So he ends up buying up all the mines that he can. He's initially seen as an invader. Very soon, there's something like 40 civil lawsuits against him. You know, they don't think he can get a water right here and use such water there. They think he's gotten a hold of this percentage of this mine through illicit means. Everybody seems to be against him because, you know, they were there first and George is coming in as this uh, this great power. But when George Hurst does go into a mining camp, there are some significant improvements. He brings with him the advent of civilization when George comes in, he's going to bring his people. So, you're going to need grocery stores and stables. Uh, you're going to need uh, schools to ra- raise the children. Trains are going to be built. So, George Hearst, in some degree, does help stitch together uh, the country. He is able to uh, connect things. Um, and that's one of his great legacies.
0: So, you love Deadwood, the HBO series. I love Deadwood. I'm sure many listeners love the show too. Uh, Hearst gets there at a really interesting moment in Western history. Mm -hmm. All of these iconic Western figures are there at about the same time. Wild Bill Hickok, Calamity Jane, the Earp brothers. um, Seth Bullock. Yep. Seth Bullock is there too. And David Milch, the the creator writer uh, of the show, he, of course, embellishes, exaggerates, takes creative license with the history to heighten the drama on the show. Uh, but how do you think McRaney did in in playing Hearst? W- was he really that ruthless?
1: Well, I would say that George Hurst in the TV show Deadwood is one of the great TV villains of all time. He's almost like a... Uh, like you can't beat him. Everybody knows you can't defeat Hearst. And uh, in the show, you know, Swearengin being the smarter of the two constantly has to pull Bullock back from doing something that will upset Hearst to the point that Hearst will burn the entire town down. You know, it's a, it's, it's great drama because at this point in the show, Swearengin was the bad guy, but in season three, when uh, you know Hearst takes center stage, Swerengin is actually now the necessary evil. You know he is the one who's smart enough to recognize that you have to appease Hearst and somehow figure out a way of getting him uh, out of town. So McGraney's portrayal is just terrific, um, and David Milch did an amazing job uh, coming up with the uh, with the concept of. Let's not use this idea, because this was the idea that George Hearst was this just wonderful, fun-loving guy. Uh, When George Hearst dies, he dies as a U.S. senator in Washington. And right after that comes out these uh, senators make these great eulogies of what a wonderful human being he was. And that was sort of the take on George Hearst. But uh, Milch decided, no, we're not going to go with that. He also, because there wasn't a, a, a biography that was worth its salt at that time, didn't have all that much to, to go by. So his Hearst, and, you know, he would have changed things anyway, but Milch's Hearst isn't actually Hearst. Hearst wasn't uh, an evil man. He was a fun-loving man, and he had rough edges. One thing that did happen, and uh, this is where uh, history and TV overlap somewhat, at least in the spirit, is there was a murder trial. George Hurst was trying to get a hold of a certain mine shaft. Um, the problem was the Pride of the West mine was very near his homestake mine, and there was a shaft that both mining outfits claimed. And there was a bit of a tussle. So George had left when he went back to San Francisco, uh, Sam McMaster, um, a transplanted Irishman, uh, to head up his mining outfit. And the Homestake mine was the biggest mine in the hills. Uh, if we're going to go back to the TV show Deadwood, this would be the hill that uh, Alma and Ellsworth, or this would be the mine that you know they had that Hearst wanted. And the, uh, the mine um, produces millions and millions and millions of gold and was later uh, turned into a place where they, uh, they do experiments with neutrinos um, that's still active. Whatever the case, there's a tussle, and Sam McMaster sees uh, some police officers and Pride of the West owners come into his office, and they serve him with a cease and desist letter. And uh, he's like, all right, I'm not going to take this line down. So he gets some of his guys, and they go down to the uh, contentious mine shaft. And there's a bit of a tussle now that uh, he's able to get uh, some of the Pride of the West guys arrested. And while they're in jail, his guys are at the mine, but there's more Pride of the West mine. There's only like Sam McMaster and like five guys, Hearst men. And there's way more Pride of the West men, you know, and they've got guns and they've got shovels. And the Hearst men decide that they will take the high ground. There's a little cabin there and three of them get inside this cabin. They're fire, or They've got their guns pointed out the window and there's a lot of jawing back and forth. But then one of the Hearst guys fires and Alex Frankenberg, who's a pride of the West man is shot in the neck and he's alive. Um, but the Hearst men are all quickly arrested the Pride of the West men storm the cabin. Uh, some of the Hearst men escape, but they'll later surrender and the next day or the day after, Frankenberg's neck hemorrhages and it's he's dead. The Hearst men have killed a pride of the Westman. So McMaster and uh, his pal Angus McMasters, no relation, they are proven that like they couldn't have fired the shot. But the three other Hearst boys, uh, they're put in jail and the trial is going to commence. And Hearst does what you should do at that point if you're the CEO. He goes down to Deadwood himself. He takes the train from San Francisco. And he's got experience overseeing trials because he's had a lot of uh, lawsuits in his uh, mining days in Nevada. And Hearst knows how you do these things. With the money you have, bribing jurors is not impossible, and he's been accused of this before, and it appears, at least the newspapers believe so, and a lot of people in Deadwood, including the judge, who was Judge Gideon Moody, who uh, fought in the, uh, the bloody Ninth uh, Infantry in the Civil War, along with Ambrose Spears. Uh, Moody, when uh, Hearst's men are fought, found innocent, despite all the evidence against them, he takes the jurors to task, and he says something that something of the matter that if a, uh, if a Deadwood jury is going to behave like a, a lot of uh, cavemen, essentially, then what good are you? And he has their names stricken from the official record. Uh, the three Hearst men are allowed to get out scot-free, uh, the last anyone sees of them in Deadwood. They're taking the old Custer Road, and they're riding their horses, and they've got their guns, and that's going to build up a lot of resentment uh, with George Hearst. But he's used to having a lot of resentment uh, thrown at him, um, not to the point of the Deadwood in the TV show, of, uh, Gerald McRaney's portrayal, but nothing like the uh, wonderful guy that the uh, U.S. Senate would have you believe um, right after George Hearst died in 1891 in Washington and they read their eulogies.
0: We will return in just a moment. And we are back again. That homestake mine, it continued to produce, right, well into the 20th century.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, At this point in time, George now has the uh, greatest silver mine with the Ontario and the greatest Gold mine with the Homestake. He had uh, about a dozen other lesser mines, and they were all making money as well. Uh, ultimately, you know, like he uh, he was making just millions off of this, you know, with his partners as well. Uh, but George Hurst would have the uh, the biggest slice of these mines. Now, in the TV show Deadwood, what finally gets uh, George to uh, to move away is he hears about a copper strike in man in Montana. And that's uh, more or less true to life as well. It'll be the anaconda mine, um, and he'll gain control of that in the early 1880s. He goes there himself. Uh, he had a stocking horse, you know, which he sent to try to get a hold of it and couldn't really get a hold of it. There was, you know, one stubborn person that wanted like a percentage. So George has to do, do it himself. And once he does, and once it is proven miraculously, to be the greatest copper strike on the planet, you see a pattern with George Hearst, he now owns the greatest silver mine, gold mine and copper mine that uh, anyone's ever heard of and they're bringing up pure copper, which is almost unheard of. Um, So at this point in time uh, everything he's doing seems to be uh, turning to gold uh, or silver or copper Uh, so he starts looking at like well what other empire can I conquer? So he starts thinking of politics.
0: And another thing that that he is very well aware of is the debate going on at the time about whether gold should be the standard or silver. And he's got a stake in both.
1: Yes. Um, And that's interesting to determine which side he'll pick because George Hearst and William Randolph Hearst ultimately won't see eye to eye. What happens is, George, because he likes his friends, he likes his cronies, and they're Western silver guys, George is ultimately going to decide that bimetallism is how the country should act, because he's going along with his pals. You know, he's got gold coming out of one pocket and silver coming out of the other. uh, So it really is not going to make a financial impact for him personally. But he wants his friends to be happy. So he is backing uh, once he gets his hands in politics. Uh, silver with everything he has. Um, at one point in time, he's even called the uh, silver senator in the newspapers.
0: And would you mind explaining why that was important, that the government chose gold or silver? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, it, it, really, uh, it really became the focus point of the election of 1896 more dramatically uh, between William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley. But it had started uh, decades before the idea was that a lot of uh, a lot of westerners wanted silver, and they had uh, silver dollars. Uh, but the gold standard was what American money was backed by. Um, you know, gold itself. Like it's not like it is today, where you know, like our money is actually backed simply by the full faith of the American government. At the time, it was gold, and a lot of people thought that if silver could join gold there would be an alleviation of pressure there would be more money in the market altogether and some people thought that this would if you if you elevate silver it would lead to a deflation of gold and if that were the case people who were in debt like say farmers to eastern bankers would have an easier time in repaying their debt uh, because you know essentially their debt would be worth less so what you ended up having was you had a lot of uh, rural farmers uh, teamed with western silver mining operators that really were key on bimetallism and then on the other side Uh, the proponents of the gold standard, a lot of Easterners who thought if you elevated silver, it will shake up the market and no one's exactly sure what's going to happen, but it might not be good for us if you're a banker or if you're a politician with ties to the Eastern banks. Uh, So post-Civil War, uh, it became one of the most uh, electrifying and divisive issues in the country. Uh, Were you a gold man, or were you a silver man? William Randolph Hearst, uh, after his father passes in 1891, and now uh, William Randolph Hearst is the Hearst, and he's a powerful newspaper mogul with the San Francisco Examiner and the New York Journal. Uh, William Randolph Hearst is actually going to be for gold, but because he's a Democrat, he is going to back William Jennings, Bryan. Um, but initially he doesn't want his newspapers to mention that Bryan is for silver. Um, and some people said that was like, uh, Hearst wants to, uh, jump in the water without getting wet. Um, but whatever the case, it was a divisive issue and it was even divisive among Hearst's own family.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hearst was so cunning he had such a, a mind for making money that he even took advantage of the capture of Geronimo, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, he uh, he certainly did, and he did in a number of ways. So when uh, when Geronimo was captured in 1886, there was a lot of land uh, between uh, Sonora, Mexico, and New Mexico and Arizona that people didn't find valuable because this was sort of Geronimo territory. And as soon as uh, Geronimo was captured, Hearst was Johnny on the spot that he was like, let's buy up this land. And very quickly he buys up a million acres uh, in Sonora, Mexico, uh, near Chihuahua, the city of Chihuahua. And he starts the Babacora Ranch. And ultimately, he's going to have a cattle ranch that, or rather, the cattle drive will go from Chihuahua, from the Babacora Ranch, all the way to Santa Fe, um, passing through, you know, areas like Tombstone. Fortunately for him, this was uh, after um, the uh, gunfight at the O.K. Corral and uh, what historians called the Vendetta Ride. So the cowboys uh, weren't uh, rustling many cattle at this point. Um, The other way George Hearst took advantage of the capture of Geronimo was in 1886, uh, Hearst had been appointed U.S. Senator uh, when uh, his Democratic colleague, Miller, um, had died of an asthma attack. And California Democratic Governor uh, George Stoneman decided that George Hearst was the guy because other than Stoneman, Hearst at this point was seen as sort of like the leader of the California Democrats. So this is getting back to uh, Geronimo, incidentally. So Hearst will uh, be kind of kicked out of office, essentially. Um, The uh, Republicans in California figure out a way to say that Stoneman appointing him was unconstitutional. George comes back to California, and rather than crawling into a bottle, he decides to marshal his resources, and Phoebe says, okay, what you should do is you should invest in a charity, and as it happened, there was a giant earthquake in South Carolina, and that's where a lot of the Hearst people were from. So Hearst uh, decides, like, okay, what we should do is we should put on a performance at you know, a theater in San Francisco, and they get one of William Randolph Hearst's pals from Harvard, Ernest Thayer, who will go on to write Casey at the Bat, the great American classic. And Thayer decides he will, almost like an SNL skit, he will, or more like maybe Mel Brooks, you know, he will create a play based on the most exciting story of the time, and that's the capture of Geronimo. Uh, So... They put on the capture of Geronimo, and George and Phoebe have box seats, and even the Republican papers uh, are laughing and find the whole thing a hit and decide, you know, George Hearst is a pretty good guy after all. So he's able to use uh, Geronimo's capture uh, in a variety of reasons.
0: So what do you think his legacy is? How is he perceived by people today? And is that perception accurate?
1: Well. Hearst's legacy is twofold. There's some good, there's some bad. You know, in one way, he helped stitch the country together, you know, through all of the industry he created and being the industrial capitalist miner. You know, when he went into a mining town, he brought uh, trains and schools and business with him. Um, On the other hand, if you look at it from the perspective of the American Indians, sure, George Hearst was stitching a country together, but it wasn't their country. Their country had also had already been, uh, you know, destroyed, uh, such as you know the Lakota Sioux in the Black Hills and the Apache um, in Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, Sonora, Mexico. So they weren't too thrilled. Uh, But, again, George exactly wasn't, you know, the one who did that. He was just the biggest vulture. Now, in UC Berkeley, they do have a bust of him because the Hearst family, you know, threw a lot of money into UC Berkeley. And they kind of repaid that by putting up the uh, Hearst Mining and Memorial Building. And as part of that bust they have of there, they have some words. uh, He filched from no man's store. There's a lot else, but he filched from no man's store. And that's true. You know, he wasn't a uh, robber in that manner, but he didn't seem to have any problem on building his store on the ashes of other people. Now, as I was reading this book chapter by chapter, as I do to my hiking partner, as we uh, drive to various spots on the Pacific Crest Trail, what really got her was when I got into fall of 1888, and George Hearst votes for an amendment to the eighteen eighty-two Chinese Exclusion Act. And what this amendment did was it stranded, exiled thousands of Chinese Americans that were overseas and could no longer legally return. And that's where she began rolling her eyes, uh, because you know she's half Italian, half Japanese and a good person besides. And that's the part that I feel is the most egregious in the Hearst story, uh, that, yeah, he was probably just going along with his Democratic colleagues, but a man of a little more substance uh, might have uh, done the right thing. Um, Now, another way he has a tremendous legacy is leaving his money to his wife, Phoebe, and his son, William Randolph Hearst. And they're both going to do extraordinary things. Now, Phoebe is going to give a lot of money to education to the kindergarten foundations, which she uh, helped champion and pioneer. Uh, she also has a library built built in Leeds, South Dakota. You know where Hearst had his homestake Mine. Um, the Homestake uh, Foundation is going to build the uh, the deck. Uh, where you view uh, Mount Rushmore. Incidentally, there's a plaque of them there. Um, She's going to give lots of money to education, Berkeley uh, in particular. Uh, William Randolph Hearst, of course, and this is part of his legacy, he's looking at the old man and he's saying, how can I possibly compete with this historic figure, this United States Senator? And like his dad, He wants to be the best in the West, and he does this instead of through mining, through newspapers, and also like his dad, who had no compunction about uh, bribing jurors, when he felt, when George Hearst felt that truth was secondary to his ambitions and what he needed to happen, he would toss his money towards that. And William Randolph Hearst, in his newspapers, saw what his father was up to in that nature and realize that honesty is not always the best policy, at least, you know, in the Hearst philosophy. Uh, so you will get yellow journalism, which Hearst, uh, William Randolph Hearst here kind of industrialized. It came about in 1896, the term, of course, people had been, uh, writing scandalous and not always true newspaper articles, uh, for millennia. You know, even Julius Caesar, you know, was, a uh, writing in his commentaries about how wonderful he was doing conquering Gaul, you know, in order to uh, drum up public opinion. Uh, but William Randolph Hearst was going to industrialize it. And as he looked as his father as the model, you know, that's the way he went about it. Now, at the same time, uh, one should take a look that he was a bit of a naturalist, you know, in the senate they did put him in charge of california's forestry and he took it seriously uh when the big push to form yosemite national park was going on spearheaded by john muir they asked george hurst is there any good mining to be done in this proposed national park and he said well if you're talking about preserving the tuolumne i would preserve all of it you know all the uh Mining really has been done, and this will be beneficial for the country. And a lot of people at that time would say that John Muir was the number one guy behind Yosemite National Park, and George Hearst came in second. And I think he actually really enjoyed that.
0: Was Hearst aware uh, of the environmental impact of his mining?
1: Well, they could see the impact of hydraulic mining, And initially, uh, Hearst would use hydraulic mining, you know, like the water would essentially like destroy a mountainside. Um, But later on, when people became more cognizant of it, he he changed his tune and he determined that uh, hydraulic mining wasn't something that miners should be able to do. So he, uh, for his time, he had a good sense of things, but... At the same time, he made his money through that sort of stuff first. And then like uh, Carnegie and lots of fellas, later on after they became rich, uh, then they started doing a more charitable acts.
0: Thank you for sharing uh, some of Hearst's story with us. And your book came out last year, right?
1: Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. 2021, fall of 2021.
0: And is there somewhere people can go to connect with you?
1: Oh, I've got a Facebook page. Um, the uh, The book's out in Amazon. This fall, uh, my new book, Hanging Charlie Flynn, about a uh, highwayman in Frontier, California, will be out. And I'm hoping uh, that Team of Giants will kind of pick up where, uh, that's the one I'm just finishing up now, will pick up where the George Hurst story left off, because this one is how... William Randolph Hearst, Teddy Roosevelt, and a number of other people uh, furnished and then fought in the Spanish-American War.
0: Oh, fascinating. Well, Well, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's been a delight talking to you.
0: Again, I have been speaking to Matthew Bernstein. He is the author of George Hearst. Silver King of the Gilded Age. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ravenous. and have a safe...